Hey everyone. In today's episode, I talk with my friend Reed about uh, data science and, and biomedical problems that he's trying to solve and uh, meditation. And there's life. Uh, he was in the last episode with Pasquale, but unfortunately, the hours, the hour that he was there, kind of got cut out. And we joked in the last podcast about how he would come and do another podcast with me soon and it turns out that he was able to do it like a week after right before he graduated and left and it was just perfect uh he just graduated from clemson got his graduate's degree or master's degree in uh biomedical data science and so he's super super smart and has a lot of really cool things going on in his brain and I'm just happy to happy to be able to to learn from him and he's also becoming a yoga instructor and has been deep into yoga and meditation for the past year or two and it's just been it's just a really fun conversation and I'd like to thank him for uh sitting down with me and wasting away a, a couple of hours but it's it's been great getting to know him and I'm sure I'm sure he'll be around <laughs> but without anything without any further ado I hope you'll have a great time listening to it and thanks for the support peace absorbed in the toad yeah and after the after sitting there for an hour I got up with such such calmness and such mm-hmm. peace and it was it just felt like the toad and I were connected for an hour straight it was really cool yeah well then you look around and colors seem a little bit more vibrant yeah um, the sounds you hear are a little bit more crisp you're just a little bit more aware it's turning that dial a little bit and all you have to do is nothing stare at a toad for an hour yes <laughs> but it's i mean it's not about the toad that could be the object of meditation could be anything um you know that's that's the idea yeah we're tying back in what we talked about last week but yeah you don't have to it doesn't everything starts from within yeah and it just hmm. yeah we've got to talk about we'll, we'll get more into meditation but we've got to talk about what happened last week with uh, the first half of the... Oh, man. That, so it was almost like serendipitous. Like you, said, you texted us and said the first hour got deleted. And I looked at Pasquale and I was like, okay, like so be it. You know, it was almost like a practice of don't hold a resistance to it. Just let it be. Yeah. And it kind of like, you know, we had been talking, that was part of what we had talked about was just not holding yourself in resistance to, you know, the way that reality is unfolding, not holding yourself in opposition to it, allowing yourself to, as Pasquale said, I think he, this part got caught in the podcast, but be like water, yeah. you know, move, move with the flow of life. Don't hold yourself in resistance to yeah. it. You get beat up by the waves. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like, it's like being a um, mo- water molecule in the middle of a river and deciding that you're going to plant a stake in the ground and say, I'm holding right here. This is where I'm happy. I don't want to move. 
I mean, you think that it, that water molecule is going to get beat to hell. Like, it's just the water has to flow. You plan, God laughs. As yeah, say. I mean, that's the that's my that's probably one of my favorite uh, probably one of my favorite uh, yeah. words of wisdom. That's been something that I, I mean, that's been a lesson for me. That's that idea of you plan, God laughs. That has been like a sticking point for me my entire life. Yeah. I've had, you know, time and time again, I make a plan, I have something that I'm set on, and I'm very, you know, type A plan oriented. I like to know what's ahead of me. I like having a clear picture of the road ahead and taking action. I like planning. I like being very organized about my thoughts and about my actions. Um, And that's, you know, a blessing and a curse, right? It's one of my strengths, but it's also where I suffer the most, I would say. It's where I cause myself the most suffering. Um, because I'll make a plan for my life. I'll set something that I think, you know, sh- this is the way it should be. This is the way it will be. Things will be better when it's like that. Um, and then it's not like that. And I have to reevaluate. I have to kind of rethink my life. I have to take a step back and say, well, why did I think that would make me happy? Um, you know, I actually, I have a tattoo that uh, says, it's, it's the first line of Psalm 131. Um, and the Psalm goes, uh, my heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things that are too wonderful for me, but I have calmed and quieted myself. Like a weaned child, I am calmed. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. And that psalm for me, like, really just spoke home and still to, de- to this day, like, as a reminder, um, you know, my eyes are not haughty, my, uh, or my eyes are not proud, my heart is not uh, haughty. I, it's all about, you know, if I think that I can make these plans, if I think that I have some control over the future, God, God's laughing. Yeah. Um, That's... And so don't, don't concern myself with these great matters. Um, be like a weaned child. You know, what does that image of a weaned child bring up to you? You know, um, a, a baby who just wants nothing but uh, milk comes into the world and is just hungry and is trusting on its mother all of the time. Um, Whenever it, it, the baby cries, the mom comes and gives it milk. And so weaning the child off of that is saying, no, you're not going to get exactly what you want right now. You have to trust that I will give it to you. Yeah. You'll have to trust that in time, when it's feeding time, I, as your mother, will give you the food you need. But you're reaching the point where you're not going to just get the breast milk anytime you cry. That's what weaning a child is like. Yeah. And so um, it's really just this acknowledgement of this image of um, trusting that what will come is what needs to come. So that's kind of, I mean, I got that tattoo back after, um, during my sophomore year. And I, so that was three, almost four years ago now. Was there any, uh, was there, was it a special time in your life? Was there a reason why that was the time that you um, got that tattoo? Yeah, I mean, there were a lot of things going on in my life. Um, I wouldn't say any major tragedies, but it was just kind of a realization that, you know, I had come to college with all of these plans. Those plans didn't work out. It was kind of, I felt like I was living my life on loop. Um, I felt like it was just the same cycle over and over again of making a plan and then being disappointed, depressed, really just down on myself, mad at myself um, when it didn't pan out. And so it was just kind of this, it was just this repeating loop and it was kind of a way for me to, um, I wouldn't even say that I've broken out of it because I'm still in that loop. Um, I think that we're all in that loop to some extent. Um, But just as a reminder that, you know, you don't have to be in that loop. You can release those expectations for the future um, and just be. Yeah. Yeah, and just be, just trust that what will come will come. Yeah. That's kind of kind of like the you plan, God laughs thing. It's 
I guess taking it to the the ends of it all. Yeah, you can no take one that. Wants to, no one wants to die. Yeah. Like no one wants to. <laughs> no one wants to die. Like no one. No one doesn't want their plans to not pan out. Like, yeah. You don't. Whenever you, I want to be an astronaut. But so I want to be sure. an astronaut. That is a very. That's lofty, an awesome plan. That's an. It's an awesome plan. It's a very lofty goal, and yeah. I know that it would. A lot of things have to happen in the, in a certain way for it to for that to happen. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. Like it's it's fun. It's fun, and it gives like a a direction to aim for whenever exactly, you're trying yeah. to do something so ambitious and crazy. But it's okay if it'll be okay if that doesn't happen. Yeah. You know, exactly. Just insert insert goal, life goal here or life objective here. I want to have children. I want to grow old and be a grandfather mm-hmm. and raise like the greatest family I could possibly raise. And yeah, no one has any control over or has much control over whether that happens or not. Yeah. The question is, do you th- is there could you still find a way to be happy if none of those things pan out? Exactly. Or are you saying to yourself, I'll be happy when I'm an astronaut? Yeah, I'll be happy when I have a family. Yeah, um, you know those. It's not bad to have plans like that. It's it's a very good thing to have goals and have aspirations. And um, you know, I want to help to cure cancer. That's that's a goal that I have. That's something that I want to work short towards in my life. I'm making steps. I'm. It's an effort. I'm striving. It's a goal. You know, you. Um, this is getting way like too philosophical about it but you know it's the it's the myth of sisyphus i believe is what his name is you know push pushing the rock up the hill and yeah. then it rolls back down and yeah. the saying is we have to assume that sisyphus is happy yeah um and it's like it's not like he's just sitting at the bottom of the hill mourning over the fact that it's gonna his his work is gonna have to be repeated it's like carry a load yeah P- find take responsibility find a way to make your life a goal to striving towards something yeah. set up an ideal set up a goal and strive towards that goal but don't tie your worth and your happiness towards the prospect of achieving it yeah that's the way that i look at it it should be you better learn to enjoy how to enjoy the work exactly in the load yeah because otherwise otherwise your entire life's going to be miserable yeah. even once you achieve it you've only achieved it for a second and then all of a sudden where am I going next like Tyson Fury the great boxer he was saw listened to him talk for a while and he was just saying like as soon as he won the heavyweight championship and became the mm-hmm. like the, the the greatest boxer at the time yeah he'd been trying to do this since he was like a 10 year old kid and then it happened and then all of a sudden he was like what's next and then what exactly yeah because his entire identity his entire worth had been i will achieve this yes and he did and like props to him that is like that is a model of a life to live after set yourself a goal and go and achieve it yeah but but while you're doing it ask yourself what am i going to do once i've once i've achieved it what am i going to do when i've done right because he's going to have to retire he's going to grow old just like the rest of us this goes back to your idea about you know we don't really consider our own mortality like we are all going to die how am i going to be happy in those you know in the end of my life just as much as i am now yeah mm. so then the question becomes and i don't have the answer to this but the question i'm like we all have to ask ourselves is 
how can I orient myself in the world to make that the case? Yeah. To make it to be so that I'm happy while I am striving towards the goal. Yeah. Well, what's your goal after you cure cancer? <laughs> I mean, all right. So after I cure cancer, I'll go on to cure Parkinson's. Okay. I mean, it's just like, yeah. it's totally arbitrary, but... Yeah. Um, I mean, I just want to just bear a load, yeah. just find a way to take responsibility in the world. And, um, my, my mentality is just do the best you can with what you've got, yeah. you know, take inventory of where your life is. And there's always somewhere you can be better. This is Jordan Peterson is somebody that I have an incredible amount of respect for just because of what he, um, his philosophy on the world and his whole idea is. I mean, it's a it's a joke, but just clean your room. Like he starts his he starts his argument with that, um, and it's you know if you want to orient yourself properly in the world, if you want to change the world, if you want the round your if you want the world the world around you to be better, start by cleaning your room because that is something that is under your control. It is within your power to maintain, and if you are living in a cluttered room with a lot of trash and a lot of dirt and a lot of mess. That reflects your inner state. That reflects the way that you think about the world and the way that you carry yourself. But if you can clean your room, if you can have, if you can organize, if you can prioritize, and you can have a clean room, that's just the start to then carry that same mentality out into the world. And so it's the it's that same mentality of carry a load, find a burden to bear, and that is and find purpose through that. Now you said you're taking steps to carry this load to try to cure cancer mm -hmm. would you mind explaining exactly what those steps that you're taking are and what your next step is um we'll see i mean this is this now i think pascal made this point too in our last one this takes me down an ego trip right yeah. this makes me think of wow how great am i i'm doing all of these awesome things people should get on my level yeah um i mean but that's not that's not it it's just um these are it's something that I enjoy doing. That's yeah. what it is. It's not like I am up here. Gotta push up the rock. Yeah, you exactly. Enjoy pushing the rock. Find a way to push the rock up the hill and enjoy it. Yeah. And this is a way that I have found to do that. Yes. Um, so I've been working in a um, computational biology lab for the last three years, doing bioinformatics work um, and working with um, cancer patients specifically, trying to wow. understand the. Um, genomic variations and transcriptomic variations behind the progression of their cancer. And you're using machine learning? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's a lot of um, computational biology there. There's a lot of like data science and data processing. Um, there's a machine learning component to it. Um, and it's kind of just, you know, more than anything, it's just been learning, right? I haven't cured anybody's cancer, yeah. but I've just kind of been learning how these tools operate and yeah. how this realm, how this world of research works. And you've been meeting, you said you've been working with cancer patients. Yeah, so there's, um, there's one uh, guy, there's, um, I don't want to, I don't want to uh, drop don't his, say, drop yeah, his name, but um, he was a, he had cancer. Mm. Um, he was a cancer patient and was a, he's a brilliant guy. He has master's degrees in various forms of engineering. He was a software engineering guy. Um, made a lot of money in the tech boom in Silicon Valley. Mm. And so, but didn't have a lot of biology background or cancer background. And so what he did was he basically, when he was diagnosed with cancer, he ended up having a biopsy done. And he took, he had um, what's called RNA sequencing. Mm. So a uh, basic level of genetics here, not that it really interests anybody, but your, your genes, right? Your DNA, your, geno your genome, what you get from your parents, 
that then makes what's called RNA, which then makes proteins. And the proteins are what actually make you you. Those are what go and do all the work for your cells and for okay. your body are the proteins. Yeah. Um, they make everything. Okay. Um, but the RNA, if you can measure the amount of different RNAs, right? So a certain gene, let's say this gene tells you you have cancer. It, it's, it's much more complicated yeah. than that. But this yeah. gene, maybe it gives you a predisposition for cancer. Mm -hmm. Or this gene is different in one tissue than it is in another tissue. Well, if you can measure the level of RNA, you can measure the, basically how highly that gene is being expressed. If there's a highly expressed RNA sequence, that means that that gene is highly active. Yeah. So like a skin cell is gonna have a high RNA, the high um, expression levels of RNA for genes that code for type of skin. Yeah. Color, melan melanin, color, skin color, texture, things like that. Yeah. That, that pattern of gene expression is gonna be different from in your eyes, from in your gut, and so on. So you're, it's, it's the idea, you know, it's like, it's, a, it's like a fractal almost, where every single cell carries the information of every single other cell, but only certain cells are expressing certain certain information. Okay. Um, and so when you look at cancer, you can say, well, a kidney sample, a kidney tissue looks one way from the gene expression values, but a cancer, a cancer cell coming from kidney looks different. It's expressing different genes. Mm -hmm. So if you can figure out what those differences are, you can get a snapshot of what the cancer is doing differently from normal tissue at the genetic level. And machine learning is helping. It's not chewing. Okay, no, she's, she's good. good. She's good. So machine, this machine learning that you're doing, from what I understand, is it's computers picking up or gathering a bunch of data and making patterns from that data or finding exactly. patterns from the data that humans can't understand. So machine learning is really good. It's kind of like a buzzword, right? Yeah. AI is everywhere. Yeah. You know, Google Cloud is using AI, yada, yada, yada. What does that mean? Um, really all that AI is really good for, um, and it's more complicated than this obviously, I'm oversimplifying, but AI where it really strives is exactly what you just described. Identifying patterns in large quantities of data that human analysis and basic statistics can't find. So if you get a sample, if you can get a collection of 5,000 cancer patients and, the, and sequence the genomes and the, R, and the RNA transcripts um, from all 5,000 of those cancers and then put that into a massive data set, machine learning can then go and find patterns that are a lot harder for us to pick out. Because let's say maybe, it's not like all cancers are the same. Maybe 80% of kidney cancers are going to express this certain genetic pattern. Well, 20% of them are going to be random, right? Yeah. They're all going to change. There's yeah. no two cancers that are alike. Yeah. Um, and so what machine learning is really good at is identifying those patterns that aren't always present, but are predictive. They're highly yeah. correlated. Um, and so machine learning is really good at that. Machine learning can pick out um, how one set of samples, maybe a group of kidney cancers, how that group is different from a group of maybe lung cancers. And that information hasn't been used yet to solve cancer. Oh, well, there's so many people working on that. This but is not something happening. that I'm, it's okay. happening, yeah. I mean, in AI, you know, it's, it's very recent, right? And people are just now figuring out how to apply it to these different domains, you know? I'm not some genius who figured all of this out. This is happening all over the world. Yeah. Um, but people are just now figuring out how you know, machine learning has been pretty much limited to statistical analysis and theoretical mathematics and you know, figuring things out like how to, drive, how to self drive cars through image recognition. There's all these new technologies coming out. Um, 
the issue is not so much in the machine learning. The, the issue is not in the algorithms. We have the machine learning, the deep learning algorithms that are phenomenal. It's about collecting the data. The, that's the big bottleneck right now. Um, it's in how to collect and, ga and gather and disseminate this genetic data. Because you know, you think about HIPAA constraints, it's very difficult to get 5,000 cancer patients, get all of their genome, put that into a data set, and then open source that to the world, right? Because that's real human data. Um, I mean, that would be like 23andMe giving your entire genomic sequence to the world. Yeah. I mean, and like, yeah. there's that. There's a whole discussion around that. There's a whole debate around where, how to manage these data policies. What should we open source? You know, there. Think, think about a use case where a kid is dying of cancer, and he gets this genomic, his genome sequence, and it's a really rare form of brain cancer. Um, you know, from the perspective of that kid, does he really care if China gets his DNA sequence and decides to throw it into a data set, or if? You know, his, his personal information is open sourced. Yeah. If it runs the you know, potential benefit of some researcher could find that data, come up with a cure for his cancer and save his life. Yeah. I mean, like in that scenario, maybe HIPAA, maybe there should be other considerations taken yeah. into how that data gets disseminated. Yeah. So that there's a whole debate right now of how this data gets collected, how it gets shared. Um, but that's the real bottleneck right now. And that's why this research is really difficult to get off the ground hmm. are there laws like are there are there genetic sequencing genome sharing laws it all data? it all falls under hipaa pretty much okay HIPAA, HIPAA stands for what is um it i should know i should know the acronym come on um, health and i don't know something it, something something but what does it do hipaa is basically the law um that protects individual in individual rights. So if you go and get an MRI scan at a, at a hospital, the hospital can't go and share that. Yeah, yeah. If you are talking to a psychiatrist and share yep. your depression or share something about you know your mental state, that doctor can't go and give that information freely to somebody else. Yeah, you're protected under HIPAA. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's genomic data falls under that same purview. Hmm. All so, right. It, that was a big rabbit hole, but that's kind of where that that's how I have found i enjoy pushing the rock up the hill yeah that is not a that's a that's that's really cool and i want to keep i want to i want to understand this stuff deeper yeah because uh i started doing computer sciencey stuff and uh a few months ago i was taking this machine learning deep learning with uh andrew what's his last name Andrew Ang and Andrew Ng. Andrew, Andrew, how do you do you know how to say? I, it? I think it's pronounced Ang. Okay. Andrew, Andrew Ang. Okay. Ang, Andrew Ng. Something like that. Something like that. But yeah. Andrew, he yeah. is he is a he is brilliant. So that what man. did what did he do? I'm gonna butcher this. I, I don't I don't know him well enough. I've actually never taken any of his courses. I know him purely by reputation. Mm -hmm. um, what I do know is that he was a professor of um, machine learning essentially, and he decided that he was going to. Um, open source a lot of this information um, because you know so much right now this is a big thing is you know the universities and colleges so much of this information is available online right if I had never gone to college and I wanted to learn machine learning I could go and I could find YouTube videos on how to code in Python I could find um, tutorials on Keras and TensorFlow which are two uh, packages in Python for doing machine learning um, and I could go and learn all the statistics. Yeah. And so what Andrew Ang did was he basically created this um, 
online course, this curriculum, where he covers all facets of machine learning. He goes into deep learning, he goes into statistics, um, and gives one of the most comprehensive lessons and curriculums on machine learning yeah. um, that exist. Um, and it was, it's phenomenal. So um, I, I really should go through and take his course just purely based on reputation. Most of what I know has been hacked together through just random pieces, random things I've learned along the way. Okay. This is a much more formal education, which I think would be really helpful. That's so funny. <laughs> I'm, I know nothing about machine learning. Like I did it for a few weeks or like a month at the very beginning of learning to program. Yeah. And I know nothing about this stuff. And you've been doing... How, how long have you been doing programming and how long have you been learning about re three, machine learning? About three years. I've really jumped into the machine learning the last two. Okay, it's it's just funny that you said that you figured your stuff out through all sorts just of hacking internet yeah. stuff. And you claim that this course is the more formal education. Mm -hmm. I've had access to the formal, quote unquote, formal ed education for 25 bucks. And I know yeah. that I've not done I, s I don't understand anything well, still, so, but so that, it's so easy to reach. Exactly. That's that's the thing is you can take these courses and they are they're phenomenal. Um, the heart the, it's it's really learning through application, right? Yeah. Um, there is so there are so many ways to apply this, right? So what really the way you learn this is not by taking a course, mm -hmm. in my opinion, yeah. in my experience. The way you really learn this and learn how to apply this is to learn the basics, right? Watch a one hour YouTube video on what machine learning is, maybe take, maybe going back and learn some basic statistics. Figure, get, get your bearings straight, right? Understand where you are in the terrain. The first step is knowing what you don't understand. The first step is just learning what you don't know. Yeah. And then just come up with a problem. Just find a data set, find something that interests you and ask yourself the question, can I predict X, Y, Z? Let's say, I mean, Kaggle is a great great example of this. Kaggle has a bunch of open source data sets that are just free and you can just download them and play with them. Yeah. So let's say there's a data set. Oh, this is like a basic example is um, car, like car mileage. How many miles per gallon does a car get? And there's a data set that exists and it has the year the car came out, the make and model, um, the miles on the car at the moment. Um, and it's, you know, all of these what are called features, right? The goal is to predict, based on those features, the goal is to predict how many miles per gallon the car gets. So then just go do it. Yeah. Just go and try out different models. Find a way you can code in Python. It's really easy. Um, just to download an IDE um, and get started with this. What is an, say, say what an IDE is? Um, it, it's, it, an IDE is basically just an, inter, it's an interactive terminal. It's where you can actually sit down and code in an, in an environment that accepts Python. You can write your code and then see an output printed right there in front of you. Yeah. It just it's it's a dedicated environment for Python, okay, um, and R and other other codes. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, just just do it. I mean, there's no like there's no prerequisites really. Learn the basics, and then the way I mean, still to this, I've been doing this for two years, and I'm not I don't, I don't know all the syntax. I'm not an expert. If I I'll be coding, and I'll come to a question, and I'm like, what what is that? I don't remember how to do that. Google it. Google it. Yes. Stack, Stack Overflow. We'll put yes. we'll give you an answer. Copy paste. Yes. Coding, people don't, people have this like, people think that coding is some, like some magical thing that's just totally incomprehensible. And I, I'm, yes, there are software developers that are just gods and who can code from the top of their head an entire application. God bless them. If you just want to address a problem, get the framework of it, come up with a question and then start coding. Yeah. 
And then you'll ask the first question is how do I read in the file? How do, okay, I have this data set. How do I actually read it, right? So how do I get it so that Python can recognize I want to, I want to do on this file, right? Yeah. I, have this, I have this file, it's just a matrix, it has the features, it has the predictions, it has all of the information I'm trying to use. Well, how do I get Python to actually read that? It's not like just opening up in Excel, right? The code actually needs to be able to access it. Yeah. I'll think Google, opening a file in Python, and you'll get some code printed out to you. Copy, paste. Yeah. Okay, well now I want to look at the first row. How do I look at the first row of a data set in, in Python? It'll give you an answer. And that's how you get started. Yeah. Like, there's nothing you can't Google. The hardest thing I've found with programming is knowing the right questions to ask. Exactly. Right. I'll find that's my. That is thing. that is exactly what it is. I'll find myself trying to write a, trying to write a script, you know, to prune some data set or address some question, and I'm gonna get I'll I'll get stuck, and I'll be at one piece of code that like. It's, you know, I know what I'm trying to do in my head. I'm trying to move one row over here. I'm trying to change a column. It's something simple. And I'm just like, I cannot figure it out. And then eventually you, you, like, you figure out the question to ask. And you just, the way you figure it out is by Googling the question in different paraphrases. Yeah. You phrase it different ways. You yeah. add different things into the question. So, I mean, you just kind of gain the skill of learning what questions to ask. But that's, I mean, still to this day, I'm not an expert programmer. I just have a better, I just have some experience in knowing the questions to ask. That's exactly what it is. Being able to Google questions is such a, it's probably the, the most important thing that I've learned throughout programming is understanding that you can independently figure out how to start figuring things out. Yeah. And the internet is your best friend. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, people don't realize how much, how many resources they have available to them. Yeah, it's you can go and learn any of this that you want. Do you have any uh, any specifics, any specific things about machine learning or about trying to figure out how to cure cancer? Do you have any specific questions that you or uh, or uh, skills that you're trying to acquire in the near term future right now? Um. The near term future, I'm in this. I'm in this kind of this limbo state right now because um, I graduate. I walk tomorrow. Yep. Actually, I'm graduating. Congratulations! So thank you. Yeah, it's a weird feeling. Um, and so, like, I've been in this phase of my entire life has been just trying to you know pass classes, right? Learn what's being taught to me. Learn it through the curriculum. Learn it through the books. Um, but in the process of that, as I've been going through that, I've also been a part of this research lab for three years, where my task has been much more open-ended, and I've kind of been able to do learn a lot more on my on my own, right? Yeah. Learn it myself, um, and I've really like enjoyed. You know, I've learned so much through Clemson and through the curriculum, and I'm very grateful for that. I always will be. I don't think I would be where I am today without that. Um, but I'm excited to have the chance to really learn more, you know, outside of a curriculum, learn it on my own. Yeah, and you know. I went my high school, the whole mentality of it, I went to a, um, I graduated with 24 people, I believe, mm -hmm. yeah, it was 24 people in my graduating class. Um, and it was a classical Christian education, it was amazing. I learned, it was beautiful. Um, and the number one, the best thing they taught me there was how to enjoy learning. It was like how to be a lifetime learner. Yeah. It was like the goal that that school set out to achieve. And shout out to the Covenant School of Dallas because they achieved that. Like I. Um, I, I want like I, there's just so many things that I want to learn, and not even relevant to um, the biology and the bioinformatics, but um, just just about life, yeah. and just being able to have the skills and the desire to 
go out and find that information. It's so, such a beautiful thing. It's yeah. a beautiful. It's a beautiful so way was, to be. That was such a not non answer to your cool question. Um, <laughs> fine. That's a cool but, answer to the cool question. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's kind of that's kind of where I find myself now, and it's just kind of at this stage of letting letting life play out as it will yeah. um, for the next phase and seeing you're, where I'm going to end up. You're learning that skill. Yeah. That is a, that is a huge skill. That's something I think I'm going to be learning until the day that I die. Yeah, like, I, don't trying think, to, I don't think I'm ever going to learn that lesson. Try to like, try to accept accept everything as it yeah. is. Like That's the curriculum I'm here to learn is, is how to do that. Be the, as a wise man once said, be the water molecule yeah, in the river. Yeah, exactly. And like the... Not not to tying back to that because I think that's such a it's been such an important point in my life is kind of coming to that realization and trying to act that out through my through my life. Um, that doesn't mean I'm just passive. Like for a while, I took that as well. If I'm not going to plan anything, fuck it. I'll just like sit around and um, I mean, why why bother, right? If if what's the point of having motivation? What's the point of doing anything if life's just going to happen around me anyway, and I can just go with the flow? Um, and so it's it's a balance, right? It's such a delicate balancing act of bearing the load, rolling the rock up the hill, finding a way to enjoy responsibility and enjoy what I'm doing in life, but not attaching um, an identity or a self worth to it because it could change at any moment. Yeah, yeah, we both. I won't. Actually, we'll talk about that. But <laughs> we we have a friend who recently had. Uh, bad stuff happened to him and he had to figure out just like with everybody and everything like uh we have our egos or our our yeah our egos are wanting to hold yeah. up on the amount of money we have the amount of yeah social status we have there's the, always something all these all these things that we have that are just gonna they're gonna wilt and die like the rose yeah exactly so yeah. you can't you can't have your your identity just held up in uh, in things that are gonna dissolve away because yeah. otherwise we talked back to that rose reference. We talked about that a little bit this morning. Yeah. Um, I was mentioning I saw an ad on Snapchat, and I feel like this is worth elaborating on a little bit. Yes, yes. Um, and this was this was yesterday. I saw this ad, and it really just made me think. I don't know why it struck me so hard, but it really. I sat there and I just stared at it. And it was an ad on Snapchat for um, the perfect gift for Mother's Day. The perfect Mother's Day gift. Um, and it was roses that last a year. You know, get your mom roses that last a year for Mother's Day. And that will that'll make her happy. Um, and I really thought about that. I don't know why it struck me. I don't know why I really decided I was going to sit down and think about it. But it ties into exactly what you're talking about. About how we are obsessed with permanence. We are obsessed with trying to create and find things that will last and we refuse to acknowledge that they'll pass away because of the suffering associated the suffering associated with that you know when you get flowers when you were given flowers it, it's amazing right you you love it you're so happy and then when they die and you throw them away there's a little twinge of sadness right and like why is that and so it's the idea that we chase after the pleasure of getting them but run away from the pain of throwing them away we, and there's, we feel both extremes. We feel both polarities of the beauty of, of receiving it, and the beauty of seeing it in life and blooming, 
And then there's the sadness of throwing it away and this twinge of you want to avoid that, that it, it hurts, there's pain in that. Um, and so this gets into what Pasquale talked so much about you know, in the last podcast that I love so much about um, that duality, that experience of this pleasure-pain paradox, constantly going back and forth between the two um, and chasing after the pleasure and running away from the pain. Um, and is there some kind of peace that lies beneath both of those, that, over, that, that encapsulates both polarities, the pleasure and the pain? What lies beyond both of those? So if you can avoid chasing after the pleasure and running away from the pain, if you can avoid that um, rat chase, essentially, what's left? And that's the question. I'm being sarcastic here, but it, it completely blows my mind that someone would be trying to sell you something that would get you the pleasure and uh, take away the pain and not have any pain. Why would, but it makes sense. I know that's right. That's a sarcasm. That's, that's like that's where that's yeah, literally exactly. the entirety. Of, that's what the Twinkie is. It's like the yeah. you, you want to yeah, just, and people just kind of forget about a lot of people kind of forget about the uh, the pain or the the the. the the dark side of the Twinkie. Everyone loves the. Well, you got to say it again. It's a yin but, yang, yeah. But it's 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 poisonous to the body. <laughs> like yeah, <laughs> like all sugar is, and I mean like like everything, everything people chase after is there's a there's a duality, mm-hmm. the yin and yang. And the question a question that I had whenever you were explaining this is is it better to just avoid everything completely or embrace that there is the beauty of getting the rose and the sadness of the rose wilting? Should you just accept it and accept the rose or reject the rose completely? I mean, you tell me if you, if you're being offered a rose, are you going to reject it just because you know it's going to die? No, that's like, I mean, that's the argument. I mean, you hear so often nowadays of, well, I don't want to have kids just because I know it's they're gonna it's gonna break my heart and the world's going to shit and their climate change is gonna ruin it, ruin the world anyway. So why bother, right? Yeah. It's all gonna die away. That's that's nihilism. That's exactly what that is. Of well, if things are impermanent, if there is no um, end to the suffering, if there is no way to avoid the pain end of that polarity, why bother, right? Yeah. And that's that's what nihilism is. Yeah. Um, but then you don't get to enjoy the rose. Then you turn away the rose. So then the challenge becomes accepting the rose, enjoying the pleasure, but then allowing yourself to also feel the pain. Allow yourself that when you throw the rose away, say, that was, that was beautiful. Thank you for, thank you for the enjoyment that you gave to me. And letting it don't don't hold on to it don't try and hold a dead rose in your house just to remember the pleasure that it gave you be the the water yeah be the water let it accept that appreciate that it was there and that it will be gone one day yeah and that's we were talking about this earlier but that's and we were even talking about it on the podcast earlier that's kind of the uh that's the challenge with loved ones passing away and with mm-hmm. you passing away and loved ones being there to experience it it's just yeah it's you gotta appreciate the time that you had and you can grieve and loss but don't don't not have or don't run away from getting close to someone just because Mm -hmm. you're scared that things won't always be the way they are exactly things will never be the way like things will never always be 
be the yeah. way that they were. You know, it's I mean, just think always about now. Think about the way that relationships play out. I mean, I've I've been in this cycle over and over again, right? You you start a relationship and it's new and it's you you're feeling that pleasure and the joy and the love and it's exciting and you are, you know, loving every minute of being with that person. Yeah. Um and then you after a while you begin to settle in and there's no longer that um that I'm not going to even say the spark, but there's no longer that endless joy, I will say. Like there's, yeah. there be, the, the, the pain begins to creep in, mm-hmm. right? Maybe you feel like you are being somebody you're not around them or you're being asked to believe things you don't believe or you are, um, for whatever reason, it's not the same as it was. And so you then you blame the other person, right? You blame the other person because they're not the same person that they were. When in reality, that's just what happens with every relationship, right? You blame the other person because you're not you're not getting the same level of enjoyment out of them. You wanted something from them yeah. when you started that relationship, and you got it, and it was beautiful. But then when the pain creeps in, that's not what you were after. So then you start to blame them, and you end up, and the relationship dies. Um, so then so then we're back to the rose. The question then becomes: Is it better to just not be in a relationship at all? Yeah. Right. Well, then you fall right back into the nihilism argument. Yeah. Do you really just want to be lonely and not enjoy that connection and that love for your whole life? No. The challenge then becomes how do you... As, as it, it, it sounds so incomprehensible to say transcend duality, right? There's no, no idea what that means. Um, but, but to move past the chasing after the pleasure and the pain. Move away, move beyond chasing the pleasure and avoiding the pain. And just accept it for what it is, and accept that person and love them, and see that they encom- that they exist within both. You can't yeah. you can't just have the pleasure from a relationship with somebody, and run away from the pain. Yeah. This works with family. This works with intimate relationships, friends. The only way you can truly love them is by embracing them and accepting them exactly as they're presenting themselves to you. This there was a. My grandparents' friend, I won't say his name, but he's he's getting old now, and uh, I've been this past year seeing my grandparents in Asheville uh, a, a lot. Like I've been staying with them for weeks at a time. Mm-hmm. Did this earlier this semester, and then uh, about a month ago. <laughs> my bad. No, about a month ago, and uh, this guy's getting old, and his his wife died. Uh, she passed away. A couple of years ago but for the last few years of uh, her being alive she started getting um, some sort of mental illness I think maybe dementia mm-hmm. or something where she became like they had a great relationship but all of a sudden she was just being really mean and like just not being herself and she yeah. was just mentally and physically deteriorating and being just was despicable and just awful mm. to this this person for for the last few years of them living together and he he bared the weight of it and kept doing it and wow. it was just it was just really uh it just says a lot yeah about even even the the relationship That's incredible. the the relationship between the two people they they chose to stick it out mm-hmm. and not not just stick it out but like they they hopefully enjoyed being each other's partner for yeah. 50 years and then even 
through no fault of either of them, life happened and she became mm-hmm. a different person. And it was just, it's, it's funny how even uh, just the, just how humans change through time. Yeah. Well, like, I mean, like you think about the marriage vows, why we say for better or for worse. Well, I mean, why do we say that? Yeah. What, what does that mean? We, we overlook things like that in our culture. But those are those are those statements, those iconic. Everybody knows that the marriage vows. I mean, the the traditional ones you say for for better or for worse. Why? Like, and that's that's what you're just encapsulating. It's yeah. exactly what you just described. That's not easy. That's it's that's. I cannot imagine like put myself in those shoes, and I pray I have that same fortitude as as your grandfather's friend did because yeah. that's beautiful. It's scary. Nowadays, it seems like, I mean, there's a lot of divorce. Yeah. It seems like that's becoming a more overlooked thing. It's becoming the norm. It's becoming the norm. I wonder, I wonder why. I wonder why. Mm. I wish I could answer. I I wish, I, I, I don't know. I, I wish it wasn't. That's all I'll say is yeah. I wish it wasn't. Do you want to get married one day? Yes. Plan very, on having very kids? Very much so. Yeah. I that's do. That's the goal? That's And again, that's the goal. That's yeah. the plan. I was, I was thinking that's, you, pl- you plan to have kids. You yeah. plan God laughs. And, but, but now, but I'll, I'll put it in like the, the, you know, better phrasing of I would love to have kids one day. Yes. And I would love to have a family. Yeah. Um, and got all, all things considered, I, I will work towards that goal. Again, yeah. it's not like I'm just passively, yeah, it would be nice if it happened. Yeah. Like, no, yeah. it's it's an aim. Like, it's yeah. a goal, and I will strive to make that a reality in my life. Um, but if you ask me, am I going to be on my, if I'm on my deathbed and never ended up having kids or a family, am I going to be devastated and depressed? Like, am I going to consider it a wasted life? I hope not. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's the distinction. That's it's hard finding out what uh it's it's hard figuring out what uh what you do now. You uh hope to look back at it with a a respect and a happiness mm-hmm. of, of doing it. Like yeah. I think anyone could say this, you just did. I I hope to be able to look back on the life that I've lived mm-hmm. and and love it yeah and accept it mm-hmm. for all the flaws and the the awful things yeah. that I haven't done yet but I will do like that's <laughs> yeah you, acknowledging you're the fact have to... acknowledging the fact I don't need to cut you off but yeah. I've made a lot of mistakes in my life and yeah. I will make more yeah right like that's it's just the way that it goes I hope I hope that uh, I hope that I can look back and love the life that I've lived. Yeah. I think it's it's scary. I don't know about you. You can I'll ask you this. Uh but it's scary for me thinking about what the mistakes that I haven't made yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think about that? You know, you probably I mean it's good if you don't. <laughs> no, I I do. Um and I think it's funny how like every, every, we all have a, we all think a little bit differently. Yeah. We all have a bit, little bit of a different lens on the world. Um, and I think of it more in the terms of um, 
how am I going to screw up my life in the future? Yeah. Like, you know, I'm, it's like I'm, I'm, I'm walking on the tightrope. Like, I've, I, there's an ego trip there of, man, I'm doing so well right now. Like, I've got it figured out. Like, I, I have my life together. I know what I'm doing. You know, there's, there's, there's an ego trip there. There's an identity there that I get caught in. Um, and then I'm humble. I'm, I always, I, I ask myself, man, how am I going to screw it up in the future? Like, I can't, it's almost like I play a game with myself. Yeah. Like, let's, let's see what I can, let's see what, let's see what happens in the future. Let's see if I hold that identity. Um, cause like, I mean, life happens and I'm, I'll make, I'll make mistakes. What, what's one way that you'll deal with the life happening? I'm breathing in. Yeah. I'm breathing out. Yeah. I mean, there's, I have all these expectations. I have these hopes. I have these identities that I carry around with myself. And then I'm breathing. Yeah. And that's just what I, that's what I come back to. Because that brings me back into what's happening right now in this moment. Yeah. So this, this practice of meditation, a form of meditation. Yeah. Would you care to explain and elaborate? Because Pasqual yeah. did so in the first hour that got cut out last Yeah, time. we kind of missed the first hour of the last conversation, so we can cover that here. Um, I mean, yeah, meditation, it, it really just is a way of changing your perspective. It's a way of opening up some space inside of your mind. Um, I'll go through the tea shop analogy that Pasquale did such a good job with because yeah. I think it's such a beautiful one. Um, we're all walking around in our day-to-day lives and have 10 thought streams going through our head at the same time. You know, for me, like, I'm thinking, um, where's my dog? My dog is at home. I need to feed her. I need to do this. I need to do that. And that's good. That's a responsibility. That's a rock I'm pushing up the hill. And I'm loving doing it. Um, but it's, it's, it's there. It's a, it's a pull. It, it pulls me back. It keeps me wrapped up in anxiety of if I'm doing something wrong or, you know, what happens if, like, I'll, I'll be out and I'll think, you know, what happens if she got out of her kennel? I put her in her kennel. I lock the doors. I close the door. But what if she got out of her kennel, the door opened, she runs out in the street and gets run over? What if? And I'll, I, I get caught in that. Um, so that's one. I get, you know, my work with my, like my research and is there an email I didn't respond to? Is there something that I need to do better with? Am I behind? Am I lagging? Am I, is somebody waiting on me? Am I holding somebody else up? Am I a responsibility to somebody else? Am I a burden? Uh, that's one. Um, with my family, you know, have I called my mom recently? Does she know how much, does she know that I love her? Like, have I, have I done enough in that relationship in the last, you know, week? What can I do better? What do I need to do? What am I doing wrong? That's another one. So like all, I mean, I, I could go on and on and on, right? Because we all have an infinite number of things that are all self-referential. And we think I need to do something better. I am this, I am that. My life could be better in the future if blank. Um, and they're just going, you know, we don't recognize it. We identify with them. When I have those thoughts about Sage, I, I identify, I, I am that thought there for a minute, right? Um, I'm not somebody, I am not an observer having that thought. I am that thought. But then when you breathe and when you come back to the breath, you recognize, oh, wait, I didn't come up with that thought. I didn't consciously say, right now I'm going to think about Sage and what would happen if she got out of her crate. And then I would get on the, the rabbit hole. No, it, it just happens, right? I mean, you can, you, you can relate, right? I mean, Every, everyone can. Everybody can relate. <laughs> I think everyone can. Thoughts just happen to you. And this is something that um, Carl Jung and uh, Freud were geniuses at discovering, and they really did dream analysis. Like, where do dreams come from? Um, 
we, we say that they're just you know random uh, sparks of neurons. That's that's not a good argument, right? They're they're too patterned. They're too narrative. Something is in dreams that we don't understand. We don't know where dreams come from. We don't actively dream. Dreams happen to us. So there's this idea that thoughts appear in our minds that we don't have conscious control over. And for a moment, as long as we identify with them, they run us. And for my entire life and for most people, they never escape that. They never recognize, wait, I'm having this thought. I am not this thought. And so the tea shop analogy is you're having all of these thoughts. I'm thinking about Sage, I'm thinking about my family, I'm thinking about my work, I'm thinking about how I stand in relation to all of them. It's all self-referential. Where do I stand in relation to the social hierarchy and the world around me? And I'm having these thoughts and I can identify them. And then I sit down at a tea shop and instead of becoming those thoughts or instead of shunning them away, I invite them to sit down with me. And I say, hello, thought about sage. Hello, anxious wandering. Hello, I mean, you name it. Um, I'm aware that I'm thinking about you. Isn't it nice that you're here today? What do you have to share with me? You know, do you have something important to share with me? Because maybe it's the fact that I actually didn't close Sage's kennel. Those thoughts can be important. So set it down and say, why are you, why are you here? What are, like, I, I'm aware of you. Hello. It's great to see you. But then in that process of not identifying with it, by becoming a separate observer of that thought happening, it goes away much easier. You're not subject to when it just passes in your mind. You can observe it acknowledge it and then you're breathing out and you're back and so that's what meditation it it has all of these mystical connotations and all of this you know eastern spirituality tied to it um, and there's a lot of validity to that but so many people get caught up in that because it doesn't fit in their worldview um, what meditation really is is just becoming aware of your thoughts and just becoming aware of okay when i'm not consciously thinking when i'm not aware of what i'm doing What's running through my head? What's happening inside of there? So if you sit down and you actually do a meditative practice, not just in the world becoming aware, if you actually want to sit down and meditate, sit down, you don't need to be in full lotus, you can sit in a chair, you can even lie down on bed, except you run the risk of falling asleep. So sit, sit down, spine straight, looking, looking ahead, soften your eyes. And it's not about quieting your mind. It's not about becoming still. It's not about achieving nirvana. Just sit there, and just become aware and you'll start realizing a thought will come up and you may get caught in it. you may run down the thought loop but then eventually you'll realize wait I'm not meditating anymore I'm thinking and then you can laugh at yourself and say haha I'm, I'm back like I realized that thought was there check mark on the meditation board like I did it you're meditating when yeah. you recognize that thought yeah. you don't need to punish yourself or say damn it, I wasn't, you know, I got caught in the thought loop again. Let's try again. Maybe I can go for two minutes longer this yeah. time. Just laugh at yourself. Say, haha, there it is. And then congratulations, you're meditating. The more you do that, the more you'll begin to recognize those thoughts as they come up and the less you identify with them. Keep it going. I'm uh, checking on the, yeah, we'll go ahead and get pause for a second. Yeah, you're good. And get a new hour going. But yeah, we were on the boat. Cool. We were on the boat all day, and then I came back and was just exhausted, and was just being stupid, and was flipping through the <laughs> flipping through the files. Oh man! Hey, you know what? Like I said, it was meant. It, yes. as, as, as it should yes. be. Yes. You know. And, all right. So we were just talking about the tea shop and the breath, 
And so whenever you catch yourself getting anxious about something or insert whatever here while you're meditating or while you're living life and just mm-hmm. happen to be meditating, hopefully throughout yeah. life, <laughs> what do you do? You uh, do you notice the the thought loop and then you just breathe, or do you notice the thought loop and then you have to consciously take that first breath? Or what, that's, so that's you, the beauty of it is you're breathing anyway. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, you're breathing anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have to do anything. That, that, you don't, there's nothing you have to do. There is no curriculum here. Um, it's, it's not like it's an assignment. It's something that you'll find, if you begin this practice, you'll find it enjoyable. It'll like give you some peace. Because what you find with those thought loops is, when I'm anxious about sage, right? And it's, it's often paranoia, right? Is it really rational for me to be thinking, what happens if she opens up her crate kennel door, opens up my door, finds herself in the hallway of my apartment, and then runs off into the street? <laughs> like, is that a rational thought to have? But it causes me so much anxiety, and so I get caught up in it, and I won't be able to leave it. Um, and so when I come back to the breath, when I realize, oh, oh there it is, there it is, haha, I'm breathing in, okay, we're, we're good, we're back, I'm breathing out, I'm breathing in. It, it's a little, it's a relief from that suffering. Because when I'm anxious, when I'm caught up about sage, I'm in those thought loops, those panic loops, it's suffering. I am not happy at the, in those moments. But then I come back to the breath and it's, it's almost like the blinders. Like I, I've actually noticed that when I'm in those thought loops, I'm looking down. Like there's a change in my physical body when I do it. When I'm in those thought loops, I'm looking down, my shoulders are a little bit hunched. I, I, I can feel it in my entire body. And then I'm breathing in. My shoulders drop back. My eyes look up. My chin tucks back a little bit. And I like there's actually a weight that feels like it drops down my my down from my head and down my body. And I'm aware a little bit more. Colors seem a little bit brighter. I can hear things a little bit better. And it's like, oh, I'm 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 back in this room. I'm back now. Like okay, what's happening around me right now? This is beautiful. Um, you can't do that when you're in your head. And so when you come back to the breath, when you notice your thought, you say, ha ha, hey, sit down for a cup of tea. Oh, there you are. I see you. I acknowledge you. I love you. Thank you. And let yeah. it go. Um, you know, it's, there's nothing to condemn here. There's, you don't have to sit down and say, damn it, Reed, be better next time. Yeah. You know, that's what, I, that's what I did for so long. And that's why I never really saw much progress. It almost caused me to suffer more. I was more down on myself. It's like one of those things you realize how far away from the goal, quote unquote, you are. You're like, there's, there's all of a sudden an ego there that pops up and says, I should be closer to the goal. I should be better there. Let's, I'll, be, I'll be happy when I'm a better meditator. Yeah. I'm like, no. That's not how, you, that's that's not how it works. That's not how it works it, at all. Yeah. It's like, you know, you're, you're, you're perfect where you're, like, right where you are right now in this moment, that's where you need to be. Now, you said something really interesting about how you noticed, you, would, you had the awareness of noticing your physical body as you were having these yeah. these thoughts. You've been doing yoga for a few mm-hmm. years now. Would you have a like would you play yoga into the contributing factor as to how you as to being able to notice your physical features? Yeah, without a doubt. Um, the thing about yoga is again, it's often laden with these really like woo-woo eastern spirituality mystical connotations and um, you know, there, there's some there's some validity, there's some truth to that. But at the same time, that's not 
that's not that's not a um, reason to shun it. It's not a reason to think, oh, that doesn't fit into my worldview. Um, it's not worth my time because it doesn't have to be right. Yoga is whatever you make it. It's it's not a practice. It's not a dogma. It's not a list of teachings. Um, it's just a practice of becoming more of aware of your breath and your body. At the f most fundamental level, that's what it is. Yoga initially was meant, um, you know, this is historically what yoga was, was a way to connect with the breath, become more aware of the subtle um, energies around you. As, as woo as that sounds, that includes the energy of your body, right? The energy when your shoulders are hunched, that's a different energy than when your shoulders are back, yeah. right? When your head is down and your chin is, um, your eyes are down, your shoulders are hunched, you're a little bit bent over. Your physical energy is a lot different than when you put your shoulders back, lift your chin, chest expands, and you can feel that, right? It, there's nothing mis there's nothing woo-woo about that. There is an energetic shift that happens physically. Um, and so yoga is about kind of recognizing that. It's about the, the, the asanas, right? It, that's the word for um, what most people associate with yoga. It's the poses, right? You see classes, you do downward dog, you do warrior one, warrior two, it's these sequences of movements. You do a bunch of crunches, right? Like it's just a bunch of ab workouts. Um, that's all just the asana. That's all the body postures. And that's just one part of yoga. That's one of the many parts. Um, but even just that one part, that one part of practicing the asana, connecting it with your breath, realizing that you're breathing while you're going through these movements, you know, a good yoga class will tie the changing in movements to the breath. So inhale, halfway lift, exhale, fold. Inhale, rise up, stand, standing mountain, exhale, fold. Yeah. Inhale, halfway lift, exhale, step back to plank. Yeah. And, and so you inhale and exhale with the movements. And so it's this connection of the breath with the body. And the more you do that, the more you realize that there really is a true connection there. You know, I talked about this last time. And this is, not, this again, kind of get, taking it away from the metaphysical, the woo-woo aspects of it. Like, there's real science behind this. Um, I talked about, This is actually one thing I talked about last time and I got cut off, so it's kind of a great we can talk about it now. Um, Andrew Huberman is a neuroscientist yeah. and has an awesome podcast that he talks about a lot of this stuff, um, bringing kind of the neuroscience to a more of a lay audience. And it's really, really cool to listen to. Um, and one thing that he talks about is the actual physical neural connection between the breath, the heart, and the mind. There is an actual neural circuit that, that integrates all of that. So when you inhale, your diaphragm drops, your lungs expand, and, but your diaphragm drops, so the vault, your heart gets a little bit bigger when you inhale. When you inhale like that, your heart gets a little bit bigger, so because there's more volume inside of your heart, your blood moves a little bit slower. So that signals to your brain, because it's moving a little bit slower, the sinoatrial node at the bottom of your heart sends a signal up to your brain through your spinal cord that says, speed up the heart because now it's moving slower because there's more volume for the fluid to move through. So then the, there's a signal that goes back from your brain to your heart and it actually speeds up the pace. So on a big inhale, when you're opening up your chest, the volume um, of your heart expands. There's more volume, your heart starts to move a little bit faster. So emphasizing the inhale, if you're doing breath work, will cause your breath to, will cause your heart to speed up. It'll become more energized. So before a yoga class, you can do more emphasis on the inhale, less emphasis on the exhale, practicing these breaths, or maybe a double inhale, single exhale, and you'll become more energized. Your heart will actually speed up. And you can practice this. This is just physiology. You know, it's in the, it's in the medical textbooks. 
Um, and then the converse is true as well. So you exhale, your diaphragm contracts, it comes up into your chest, your diaphragm lifts up, that constricts the volume of the heart, which means it moves the, the volume moves a little bit faster because there's less volume, the fluid moves faster through it. That, that additional speed in blood flow sends a signal up to your brain that says slow down the heart. So then that signal goes back down to your heart, which then causes your heart to slow down. So emphasizing the exhale, let's say you're trying to go to bed and you can't fall asleep. You're like really wound up, you're in these stress, stressful thought loops, you're just, you're just panicking, you're wound up. Just at, emphasize the exhale. Maybe do a double exhale, single inhale, right? That will calm your heart down, will slow your heart rate, will put you more at rest. That's a meditative practice. That, what I just described is a physi, is a, Physio physiological background the behind the yoga practice has been done for thousands of years. Yeah. And the, it's funny how uh, scientists just in the past few hundred years have really started to understand mm -hmm. that. And these, these uh, yogis and these people that were practicing yoga a thousand years ago, they already, they understood yeah. it in different words. Exactly. You know? They understood it. They didn't have the Western science lexicon to put it in. To they legitimize had, it. It, quote, it, quote, it, legitimize it, to, it, to legitimize us, it, right? Us. Because as far as we're concerned, if we can't see it on a CT scan, it doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah. You know, so like, you know. That's silly. It, it, yeah, it's like the idea that, you know, I, I might turn a lot of people off with this, but like the idea of the chakras, right? The seven energy centers that run up your spine. Uh -huh. We don't, those aren't physical, those aren't like neural um, Bundles. They're not like physical. It's not like an organ you can see. Mm -hmm. And so people write it off. They're like Western, um, Western science says those don't exist. That's woo-woo. That's nonsense. Ignore it. Yeah. Um, but if you go back and read the text, that's, ne that's never what they were intended to be. They were never understood as physical spots within the brain or within the body. It was merely visualizations to begin to understand this energy that runs through your body. Yeah. It was a visualization of where that energy can be stored and be focused on. Yeah, that's all. That's all that it was. Was a visualization of these energy centers. So you could focus and yeah. feel. So it's that's okay if I might turn you might turn a lot of people off by talking about this. So that's fine, and I'd, I'd encourage people that have no idea what these seven chakras are to just kind of listen with an open mind and to yeah. not auto automatically like judge it mm -hmm. and turn it off and just be like, all right, yes, I'm not going to listen anymore to this. Yeah. I don't know what the seven chakras are, but I want to. I want to learn. Okay. Yeah. I've heard about them through, like anime and like Naruto sure. stuff. I know most people. Most people's only exposure to the chakras is like Avatar: The Last Airbender. Like, <laughs> <Avatar The> <laughs> Airbender we're talking. We're talking to the guru, right? Yeah. And I'll go ahead and put the preface here, just because I feel like I need to. That like I'm not claiming any of this as science. Yeah. Right. I'm not claiming any of this as factual truth. I will only say what I have learned. I yeah. will say what has been taught, right? Yes. I'll, I'll, put, I'll frame it as that, um, and people can draw their own conclusions. Yeah. That's that's the way that it yeah. should be, right? Don't take anything that I say as gospel. That's not what I'm. That's not what I'm trying to do. This is yeah. what. Um, this is kind of what's been taught for thousands of years as a visualization, as in a way to as a way to conceptualize um, everything from evolution to um, God. Is that <laughs> in a sense, yeah, yes, the, ener yes. the energy um, that run, kind of runs through your body, right? Yes. Um, and so I'll kind of just run through the seven chakras, right, um, right, as a basic. So it starts at um, the root chakra, which is the base, and it, it colors the seven colors of the rainbow, right? So think about the seven colors of the rainbow, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. Mm -hmm. um, 
you kind of run through up, up through those. Um, so red is the root chakra. That is like when a baby is born, what's its main goal? Survival, right? It doesn't know anything about the world. It's just how can I get food and am I secure, right? That's what the root chakra is. So if you are fearful, if you are not secure, if you don't have food, right? If you don't have the basic necessities for to live, right? They would say that your root chakra is unbalanced because you are fearful, you are insecure, and you are out of balance in that area, right? So it's a way of visualizing, okay, am I secure? Do I feel safe? Or am I trying to run for my life? And am I trying to forage for food? That's a way that the root chakra was visualized as a, as a mode of survival, right? So you're, uh, what they would call a balanced root chakra is you're, you're good. You're, you have enough food, you have, a house, you have shelter, you feel secure, you feel safe. You don't feel fearful of the world around you, okay? And that's kind of at the base of your spine. That's where the energy is said to pool, right? That's like the most basic when you're born. That's what's active is your root chakra. Um, so then the next one is the sacral chakra. That's the second chakra. Um, and this one is orange. And it refers to the um, basically beginning to understand duality. Because at the root chakra, there's just one. There is just observation, there's just survival, there is just living. The second chakra, you begin to experience duality and you understand there is, a set, there is something separate from me. There is, a, um, there is an energy. It's, it, it has largely to do with energy and with cultivating energy. Um, this is where sexual impulses come from. They say it's the second chakra, the sacral chakra. Um, so it's about understanding that there is a sexual drive for reproduction and that there is a you that is separate from me. Okay, that's the second chakra. The, church, the third chakra then is the solar plexus, um, and this is yellow, and that is understanding um, essentially force, momentum, that I can exert will over the world. It has largely to do with power. It's, um, the, the, the solar plexus chakra is about power. It's about uh, influencing the world around you, the fact that I can exert change in the world around me. Not only are you separate from me, but I also have the capacity as a human being to exert willpower over you yep. and over the world around me. I can cultivate the world, right? Control manipulation. Right. And so this is kind of how it ties into evolution where it really gets interesting is they they understood this as, if you actually really tie this into evolution, Who's right? They? Uh, the they? The, the, okay. the yogis, right? The, in in the India, Hindu the Hindu, Hindu religion, when this was like understood, Think about it through the ages, through the stages of evolution, mm -hmm. right? Like, where does a dog exist on the on the spectrum of consciousness? Yeah. we'll say. Well, they exist within the second chakra, where they're where they're aware that you know I am as Sage's um, dad. I'll say I am not her, and she is not me. Yeah, she she understands that there's a separation there. She understands that there's a world around her. She can go chase after a squirrel. She can chase after butterflies. She can. You know, she understands that there is a world around her that she can interact with. But she doesn't have the conception of willpower. We'll call it a self-identity, right? There is, not a, there is not a sense that I can exert power over the world. I can change the world. You don't yeah. see dogs building temples, yeah. right? Yeah. We, as humans, are in, like, we, they, they, there's the idea that we exist in the third chakra yeah. center. Wait, and I'll, I'll, wait, I'm sorry. I wanted to let you, let everyone know, Sage has not been, no one has seen Sage. Sage is a 
Australian Shepherd. He's uh, a mini Australian your, Shepherd. Your yeah, puppy. She's my Aus- six-month-old puppy. Okay. Now, yeah. now, what do humans... I just wanted to get that out there for everybody yeah. real quick. So, we exist... Sage exists in the... Has... In the, in the second? In the second, yeah. So, the sexual... No, there's a second. There's other. No, there's a world around them. No, there's something that is outside of themselves, but don't know how to impart power over that. Build we'll the say. temple. Build the temple, right? Um, and so it was a way of conceptualizing evolution that was just purely brilliant because it really kind of brings you to these centers of self actualization. We are self realized. If I look in a mirror, I can say, that is me. I am that identity. If Sage looks in a mirror, it's different. She, yeah. It's just confused. She's like, oh, this is kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, but they, they don't see themselves. Yeah. Um, and so the third, the solar plexus chakra is about that. It's about power and force and exerting, um, cha- changing the environment around you. Um, and then so now we're getting beyond that third chakra. And this is kind of where it gets a little bit more woo-woo and it gets a little bit more... Um, spiritual mm-hmm. I guess um, okay. and so just speaking purely objectively as to what what is taught the fourth chakra is the heart center it's green and it's right where the, um, the heart lies and it is actually at your heart center okay. um, and it's basically considered as the center that reflects the connectedness of all things it represents love it represents the understanding that we are all essentially one fundamental fabric of reality. We all exist as outpourings of the same energy, however you want to say it. Um, you know, I think the the idea is basically that we are all we are all one. You know, it's coming coming out coming out of that sense of the third chakra that I am a separate individual who can exert power over the world, and it's coming back to the idea that wait, no, we're all connected. We are all of the same thing. Um, that's what the fourth chakra recommend, re- represents. The fifth chakra then is the throat chakra. And that represents your ability to vocalize your beliefs and your opinions to those around you. Um, so an imbalanced third cho- uh, fifth chakra, people would say, means that you're mute, you're quiet, you're more reserved. Um, and so what the, the fifth chakra really represents your ability to um, vocalize your opinions and express your beliefs. I've got a question. Does- yeah. Does could it also be imbalanced in that you're <laughs> you're talking too much? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. so, so that's all of all of these chakras, right? The the idea is that it's a balance. Okay. There's there's polarities that exist on either end of both of them, yep. and you can um, exist as an extreme on either end. So let's go back to the, the third chakra because that's a really important point. And w- before you get going, is is there is there normally a duality or is there just a, like a one and a two or is there a one a two a three four five like Eight it's, holes, eight different ways of... Yeah, that's a great... Um, I mean, this is kind of where it gets a little bit more um, murky because there's not really a specific answer, right? Yeah. It's more of like, you know, just fi- to go and figure it out, right? Yeah. It's kind of like everybody just kind of explores this. Okay. Um, but the idea is mostly... It's really in polarity, that there's two... is a balancing act of two mm-hmm. extremes. So like, let's look at the third chakra for the power, the willpower, the exerting force of the environment. Yeah. And we, we would call it balanced, right? You can have a weak third chakra where you're timid you aren't really um you don't take action you're afraid to act you're afraid of failure right you you you're very timid to go and exert force and change around the world around you you don't want to step out of your comfort zone then there's an overactive third chakra where you are domineering you're tyrannical you are oppressing other people right you are 
overly, you're, you're excessively trying to exert your force around others. That's the idea, is that it's a balancing act of those two. You don't want to be at either one. You don't want to be timid. You also don't want to be domineering. Yeah. So it's about how do you balance that. Yeah. And that exists on all seven of these chakras is the idea, is balancing that. And that's how you find a centered and balanced life. Okay. Um, so the sixth. So yeah, the, the fifth chakra is the throat chakra. Yeah. That's about vocalization. Mm -hmm. Now then we're getting very, this is, this is where you get really into the spirituality of it. Okay. The sixth chakra is where, it, that is considered the, the seat of intuition. Um, it's right at the corner. It's right between your eyes. It's right between your eyebrows. Um, you often see um, Hindi's wearing a little bead between their eyes. Yeah. You see pictures with a third eye. Mm -hmm. It's it's like it's it's ingrained in our culture, right? What is that third? What's the idea of the third eye? Um, and this is kind of what it represents. Is it represents that seat? It's it's um, I believe it's associated with the pituitary with the pituitary gland, which is a lot mm -hmm. of hormonal regulation. Um, and so that pituitary gland is related right there with the third eye chakra. Um, and I mix up the pituitary and the pineal. One of them is associated with the seventh. So I'm going to say, okay. just keep okay. the pituitary and the pineal in line with both of these because okay. it flips. Pituitary is the hormone. Pituitary hormone. is hormonal. Pineal, pineal is um, melatonin secretion. Um, has, it has to do with serotonin as well. Um, Descartes, actually, Rene Descartes called the pineal gland the seat of the soul. Okay. If that gives you any, if that gives you any yeah. insight, like there has been a lot of metaphysical connections around the pineal gland. Okay. Um, back to the chakras. The sixth chakra is all about intuition. It's about clairvoyance. It's kind of about these ideas of clairvoyance, um, telep telepathy in a sense. Um, all of these like really weird ideas that people seem to believe that um, in in ancient times there were all of these like superpowers basically people could achieve. That's actually something that was taught in yoga. There are, the, there, there are superpowers to be achieved, like clairvoyance, telepathy, um, mental powers that we don't have the capacity for. Now, I don't, I'm not going to delve into that territory. Yeah, but okay. I, that is associated with the, with the sixth yes. chakra. Is basically, yeah. in, we'll call it intuition. We won't go that far. We'll call it intuition because I don't know, right? This is yeah. kind of where I li I'm at my limit. This, this feels kind of similar to uh, miracles in, uh, in Christianity. It, it's, yes, exactly. Okay. It's that idea. They, um, people in India and the Hindus have a lot of connotations and associations with Jesus Christ. Yeah. There's a lot of... Um, there's there's more overlap between those than they than they That's actually give credit to. That's so fascinating. Um, yeah, and so uh, the Hindu traditions actually talk a lot about miracle workers. Like there are people who are said to have been able to levitate. There are people who are said to have been able to um, have clairvoyance and telepathy. Walk on water, right? Like didn't they? Didn't I, they? And again, know I'm not of Jesus Christ. They, yes, they actually venerated Jesus Christ as one of their um, you know yogi gurus. That's interesting. Will. It's really interesting. I don't know what to make of that. I still kind of am trying to piece that together. Yeah. It's, it's just an interesting piece of history. Yeah. Like they, they, they love, they honor Jesus yeah. Christ. It's really fascinating. Um, and so that's the sixth chakra. We'll okay. call it intuition. Okay. Put all of the metaphysics aside. We'll intuition. call it intuition. Okay. Um, and then the seventh chakra is at the crown of your head. That's that's associated with what's what they what's the thousand petaled lotus, the fully bloomed lotus flower, which is a big symbol in Hindu tradition in India. Is the is the lotus flower, the fully bloomed lotus flower. Um, if you ever look at a lotus, it actually it it blooms. It grows in like rice paddies. It grows under it grows underwater. So the roots set underwater in this murky substrata, and the the roots take hold, and then this shoot um, of the lotus shoots up through the water. And then creates this patty, this leaf on top of the water, and then the lotus flower blooms on top of the water, and so it's this symbol of the roots reaching all the way down to that substrata, um, and then this blooming into the surface. The of, of of 
and it's it's the idea of um, the Buddha achieved nirvana, okay. right? It's this idea of paradise, of the ideal. Um, th think of it as the ideal way to carry yourself in the world. Okay. The whatever your we, we talk about ideals, right? The way to carry yourself in the, in the world, the ideal that you set for yourself, the best that a man could be. I, I said as mankind, man or woman, the best yeah. that a man or woman could be. That is what the crown represents, yeah. the fully bloomed lotus. Um, and so that's the seven chakras. That's what those actually are. And so, yes, there's a lot of metaphysical and woo-woo connotations tied around them, but you really dive into them and you look at them in connection to evolution and human development. And there's a lot of wisdom to them. There's a lot of, when you start understanding that the root chakra is associated with fear, well, where do babies? Like, babies can be afraid if they don't have the food or the shelter that they need. Then toddlers begin when they understand that there is a me separate from you. If we were toddlers playing with toys, I might share or I might take them back from you because I'm yeah. beginning to understand more so than a baby does that you are separate from me and I have needs that you don't have. And then as they become teenagers and a little bit more developed, then it becomes a power game, right? How can I push the boundaries? How can I test the limits of the law? How can I test the parents of the rules of my parents? How can I exert power and will over the environments around me, kind of testing those boundaries yeah. as a teenager? So you really start to think about the chakras in terms of human evolution, and there's a lot of wisdom there that's just yeah. overlooked, overlooked because of the connotation around them. That's so fascinating. And it's, we talked a little bit about how uh, the, I guess, the Hindis, is that the right word? Hint, hint, yeah. Would I, is that a uh, yeah. good way to say it? Okay. The Hindis and people that followed this, the religion of Hinduism, knew of and uh, talked, uh, like, highly regarded mm -hmm. Jesus Christ. Yeah. That's pretty, that's pretty crazy. There's, mm -hmm. I, I had absolutely no idea that, uh, I maybe had heard that once or twice whenever I was in, like, high school in, like, a... Uh, a world history class or mm -hmm. something but that's so it's so crazy yeah <laughs> it's really weird i mean they you look um they venerate him they consider him to be amongst the most um highly praised of their you know their gurus if you will yeah. their yogis that they pedestalize and that they say brought their brought the ways of yoga to them and maintained them and preserved them mm. um and it's just it's i don't know what to make of the fact that jesus christ is up there right there with them yeah that is wild. It's, I, but I do think it is important to, regardless of whatever beliefs anyone holds, I do think it's important to uh, listen mm -hmm. and, and hear and instead yeah. of just shun away from, oh, you're talking about chakras? I don't want to hear anything about, I don't. Exactly. I don't, I don't yeah. really, like, I, I think it's, it's, it's we cool have this, to know We have that, this view of the world. We have this way of, of orienting ourselves around the world. Um, that we feel is threatened yeah. by other ways of being. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's, hard, it's hard to consider that there might be some validity in them. Yeah, yeah, it is hard. Yeah, and it's, some people, I know, I know a family member, I won't say names, who, uh, who would say to another family member that listening to these different ideas and still holding your own is a mm -hmm. testament to your own values. Yeah. Like you can still be a Christian and hear about what uh, a Hindi person is saying exactly. about their religion. I think yeah. it's 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 so important just with any insert 
insert human aspect, human life aspect here. Uh-huh. It's so important to hear everyone else's. Yeah. And to actually hear. Yeah, and, and actually, actually and actually listen. Yeah. That's that's the big thing. I I find myself listening and reading in a, a bunch of things that I think are total you know crock of shit. Right? Like I don't yeah. I don't buy into everything that I that I hear or that I read. Yeah. But that doesn't mean I won't listen. Like yeah. I, I'm I'm really curious to know. You know, I see you're reading the rise and fall of the Third Reich right there. Yeah. Like you don't do you agree with what Hitler was saying <laughs> no, and all of his propaganda? No, not at all. But it's yeah. fascinating to learn about. Yes, and you need to you need to understand the way people view things. Exactly. Like you need to understand other people's views in order to validate your own and to strengthen your own and to figure out the ideals that mm-hmm. you should aim for. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And there's this other book that I'm reading, The Road to Reality, which is by Roger Penrose. And I want to talk to you about, I really want to talk to you about that. Yeah. So it's... it's. I have not read it, and I'm going to butcher a lot of this stuff because well, it's way over my head. Okay, okay. But okay. let's go for okay. it. Okay, well, what does it say? Uh, the What does the front of it say? It's by Roger Penrose. The Road to Reality, a complete guide to the laws of the universe. That is so cool. A comprehensive guide. This is the New York Times, how they, how they yeah. end it. A comprehensive guide to the physics, to physics big picture and to the thoughts of one of the world's most original thinkers. That's dope. I mean, well, this book is dense. So there's the first few chapters. How much, how much into math, how into mathematics, I can't talk. How into math are you? Um, well, I, having been an engineer, having been graduated in engineering, there's a lot of math that's required in there, which I'm actually very thankful for. Because yeah. it does help me to understand like a lot of this quantum physics that ties into a lot of this stuff. It's just fascinating. Yeah. It, you kind of understand it a little bit better. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, we, we talked about, before we started, yes, the other day's podcast, you noticed the platonic world, and you were seeing the, uh, the, the different worlds yeah. that there are in the platonic world is this this idea that there's an a world outside of the the realm of human existence mm-hmm. where numbers and truths in general lie would you like to talk about it so this i am more i am really interested in this from the psychological level okay um from like Carl Jung's view of the archetypes, because okay. it's the same principle, right? It's the same idea that there is a world that exists, we'll call it beyond the veil, beyond our platonic view of the world, our 3D reality, um, you know? And we won't, go, we won't go anywhere metaphysical. We won't call it anything beyond, let's go back to intuition. It's the same, when I use this, the idea of intuition for the sixth chakra, it's the same idea. Um, that there is this place where thoughts come from, where creative ideas come from, where intuitions come from, where these n- numbers and thoughts and mathematical formulas come from, and as young as Carl Jung would say, where the archetypes come from, right? These, I, I hate to say it because again, this is going to turn so many people off. But the tarot deck. What is that? Um, I don't. I, I don't know enough about it. But the tarot deck is basically the twenty-two. Um, archetypes it's a deck of cards and people will like pull cards and try and divine fortunes from them have you ever seen that yeah oh i've seen like some yeah some fortune teller stuff yeah Yeah. that so tarot deck aside this is not about fortune telling this is not about divination carl explain carl jung too 
So, but what these are, the tarot deck represents these archetypes, yes. just these ideas that are, if you have an idea that's the most fun, you can boil it down to the most fundamental nature of it, right? Um, that's an archetype where the idea cannot be distilled any farther. Um, so in, archetypes, mathematical formulas, intuition, creative, when, when an artist is creative and decides to just put pen to paper, all of that represents the same idea of where do those come from? You know, we, dreams. We don't know where dreams come from. We don't know where any of this comes from. We, we think we have a really good understanding of the brain and of neuroscience, and we do, of the physical mechanisms of it. But you can't say that I fire this neuron and it makes me think of red elephants. Yeah. It, it doesn't work that way. Yeah. We don't have that level of understanding. So, going tying back to your book about the numbers and mathematical formulas in the platonic universe, where do these things come from? That's the fundamental question. I'm interested in, uh, in, in being able to understand mathematics in a, in a better way and like a more holistic, legitimate understanding so I can read that book yeah. better. Because that is, it's so funny, like you asked, where, you asked about the neurons or you said uh, we don't know where the neurons, where each neuron hits to create a picture. We also don't really know why they fire at all. Exactly. Yeah. You know? I mean, we can, we can get pretty close. We can look at animal brains and we can look at um, fMRI scans and things like this to understand um, what, how certain neurons function with certain brain processes, right? Like, I know that um, this ties into the, um, the neurology of it a little bit, but the default mode network is a part that's been a, a, lot of, a, a big area of study right now. And that has a lot to do with like self-referential um, thought processes, right? So when I'm thinking, when the default mode network is highly active, it's a lot of self-critique. It's a lot of like you. If I asked you some adjectives to describe yourself, how, well, what adjectives? What adjectives would you use to describe yourself? Uh. So you don't have to say it, but in that yeah, process yeah, that you just yeah. went to thinking, yeah. your default mode network lit up. Okay. That that part yeah. of your brain lit up. Well, what's really interesting is they've done fMRI studies on longtime meditators, like Hindu monks, um, Buddhist monks, um, and, and Zen meditation teachers. Um, they've done fMRI scans on them. And what they've noticed is that their default mode network, that self-referential part of their brains, is far less active. It's much more quiet than a standard normal population. Um, and so there's clear evidence that meditation actually changes the fundamental neuro neurobiology. Um, so again, the question is why? What is that part of your brain and how does that relate to these thoughts that come up, right? We were talking about earlier, the purpose of meditation um, is to just recognize those thoughts when they come up. I am worried about sage. I am worried about, you know, my relationships. I am worried about my tasks and my, and my project. That's all self-referential. That all lights up the default mode network. And what am I doing when I'm meditating? I'm coming away from that. I'm stepping away from it. That's so interesting. It's so funny, like, the it's it's so funny there's always it seems like there's always there are always more questions to ask like yeah. as soon as we figure out exactly what the default mode network does and all these things then you go to why the heck does it even happen to begin with and then <laughs> yeah. you answer that question and then it's like well why does why answer old answer to, like it, yeah. it feels like there's always something new to be to be discovered. It, exactly. It is a, um, it's, it, it can, re it is infinitely reducing, right? Yeah. You can ask that question of, 
You can take the presupposition from the previous argument and ask, why is that the case? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about, uh, yeah. I want to completely change, change the topic from no, meditation, yeah. religion, uh, archetypes, all these things. And I want to go back. That's crazy. If that was a full, I'm going to see if that was a full hour just there. Yeah. Wow. Well, I guess I can't now, but. Yeah, wow. we'll see when it's all stitched together. Wow. That's uh, nuts. Anyways, uh, I yeah, want to talk about numerai. Numerai, yeah. Numerai, and since you're a machine learning person and are super into all these things, I don't have very many friends that are uh, deep into this. Mm -hmm. some of these things that Lex Friedman and, and company talk yeah. about on his podcast. So, I'm a big fan so of Lex Friedman. Could you tell us, could you explain what numerai is? Sure. Um, so numerai is a numerai. Yeah. Numerai is is the same thing. I don't even know which one's right. Um, it's a really unique concept. So it's, it kind of builds on the idea of cryptocurrencies, right? Where it's decentralized. You have um, no central bank, no central government controlling the um, distribution of the currency, distribution the, di controlling the distribution of money. So that's the idea of cryptocurrency: is decentralization. Well, then you hear about AI. Like think about the think about the Terminator movie, right? where the Terminator, what's the plot of that movie? Now I'm going way off on a tangent here, but I'll, I promise I'll bring it full circle. Okay. The plot of, of Terminator is the government builds an AI with the task of maintaining homeland security. So it said, if you detect any threats to our national security, eliminate them. What well, starts doing its job really well. And so the government decides, hey, let's, we're gonna turn this AI off. It's doing too good of a job. If we're, if we're getting afraid of it. So they go and try and turn it off. Well, then the AI, realizes that, well, now they're the threat. Yeah. They're trying to turn me off. My job is to detect threats to security. This is a threat. That's how the Terminator goes and begins to destroy humanity. Yeah. Well, okay, let's take that back a step. If, if, that's the, if that's the idea, right? The zeitgeist is that um, AI is going to take over the world one day. You've surely heard that, right? Everybody kind of has that idea in the back of their head like as a doomsday scenario. Yeah. Um, well, before it does that, it's going to own all the money in the world. It's going to take over all the money in the currency. It's going to do a really good job, going back to, to, to statistics, of owning the stock market, of predicting fluctuations in the stock market, betting accordingly in the stock market, and winning and getting money in return. It's going to suck up all the money in the stock market due to its predictive power. So what Numerai is attempting to do, uh, attempting to do is get ahead of that process and decentralize it. So what Numerai is trying to do is basically combine a hedge fund, a data science competition, and a cryptocurrency. So what Numerai does is they collect all of this financial data and they obfuscate it. They, norm they normalize it, they get rid of all of the stock ticker symbols and all of the you know, features, right, which may be public sentiment, might be price fluctuations, yeah. might be company values, right, quarter three reportings, and, yeah. things like that. And they just get rid of all of the labels. And they give you this, they open source this data set of stock ticker symbols and, um, and features to predict on. And they give it to data, data scientists. And they say, here's this data. Now go engage in a competition. Compete for one, can play against one another. Play this game of predicting the stock price. Whoever does the best will reward with a numerator cryptocurrency. So you build a machine learning model, right? You take their data, you, you predict on it, you build a model, and you submit it. You submit your predictions of what's going to happen in the stock market, essentially is what you're doing. 
Then the Numeri hedge fund takes all of the conglomerated predictions of all of their data scientists, yeah. and they actually invest in the stock market accordingly. They say, we have you know, thousands, thousands of data scientists predicting this. So even if one model is bad, one model is great, they'll average together. We'll try and invest based on the conglomerate of predictions. Well, they do that and they make money. That's the idea of the stock market predicting, or the AI predicting the stock market. Except now, instead of a centralized algorithm, it's all of these data scientists working independently trying to win a competition to do exactly that. And so if you do well, if your predictions help Numeri make money in the stock market, they'll reward you. That's awesome. So if I, like, let's say I predict, I make a stock market, I make a model, and I say, I believe in my predictions, I'm going to bet 50, the equivalent of $50 in cryptocurrency. So whatever $50 worth of numerator or cryptocurrency is, I'm going, to, I'm going to bet $50 that my, my model does well. If it does well, I'm rewarded. I, I get, I win, it's like a winning a bet. If I don't do well, I lose the money. It just gets burned. Um, and so it's like that is, that's how they encourage um, people to not just submit random predictions, right? Because you don't want random predictions in the model yeah. to predict on the market. You want good predictions. And so people are not going to bet money on bad predictions. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's yeah. how they ensure that. That's so cool. And whenever you say make a model, could you go into a little bit more depth about what, what that exactly is? Sure. So that is like, that's just machine learning. That's however people decide that they want to... Um, Model the data. So what you do is basically you take all of the inputs, and this is getting into kind of the machine learning, the fine details of it. But you take the data set and you say, okay, let's let's go back to the um, car example because it'll be easier since okay. it's not randomized. Yes. Um, so I have an example. I have a data set that has all of these makes and models of cars, and I'm trying to predict gas mileage. It's the same as having a bunch of ticker symbols and trying to predict stock price in the future. Just different application. So I have all of these make and models of cars and I have gas, gas mileage I'm trying to predict. Well, I have year the car was bought, state the car lives in, gas, well, maybe gas prices. Um, weight of the car is a good example. Mm -hmm. like I have all of these, what are called features, that might have correlation to gas mileage because a heavier car is gonna have a lower gas mileage. A lighter car is gonna have better gas mileage. Yeah. So that would be called a negative correlation. Lower weight, higher, miles per gallon. So you, when I say make a model, it's basically training a machine learning model to understand those correlations. So that if it then sees something that it has never seen before, like a, like a new stock symbol that has, or let's say it's a new car that it's never seen before, and it has, it's a heavy car. The machine learning model, is, it's known to notice, hey, this car is really heavy. Because of that, I'm going to predict that it gets a poor gas mileage. Yeah. That is how you. That's how you build a model. Is by under. Is by basically using these algorithms to understand those predictive features. And these algorithms aren't. Instead of just us humans are kind of, we're able to get the one example of one variable causing mm -hmm. something in another variable. But these neural networks, and I've come to understand neural networks they're able to take all of these different variables and compare them to every other variable and then every other prediction. Like exactly. It, it goes into it, just a whole slew of patterns that we just can't even pick yeah. up on because there's too many of them. And so there are... Um, too complex. There are other... Like there are statistics. Like you can do a linear regression model to 
predict this the same thing. And that's just basic statistics. That's like an algebra equation. Okay. Um, so it can be really simple like that, or you could have a neural network, which that gets really more complex. That more looks like that honestly looks like more like a brain than a than a statistical algorithm. Because the way that neural networks work are you hear the word neural, right? Neural connections. Um, it's each every one of these nodes in the network. So think about like a branching tree. Every single node in the network is going to have some kind of pre prediction where it either goes, maybe it goes off to this other branch or this branch down here. It's going to keep branching for as many features, for as many nodes as you give it, essentially. And you can customize what those layers look like. Those, wait, those, um, I'm, and I'm, 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 I'll go deeper into that. Those nodes, those nodes, you're talking about it's like a one neural. node, one, one node would be, correct me if I'm wrong, but heavy car lower gas mileage. Or so this this is actually, we're, now we're okay. in neural networks, we're away from like those inputted features. Okay. okay. Now it can be like a combination of all of them. Yeah. Right? Because we're now, we're now getting into things. This is where it's called unsupervised learning because we actually don't understand. We, we, we can go in and figure out the basics of it, but what's happening in those nodes, we don't teach it to do. It just starts learning because it knows the way that machine learning works and a true unsupervised deep learning works is you give it the inputs and you give it what you want it to predict. And it just over and over and over and over again does it until it gets incrementally better. So it's gonna run this simulation, we'll say. It's called, call it a simulation. And it's gonna say, maybe it'll start off as random. Say, given these features, I'm gonna predict the same thing for all of them. And then it weighs, it, it compares the accuracy. So how well did it do? And it's gonna get a score. Did I predict well or did I predict poorly? It predicted poorly. So it's gonna go back and little alterations on each one of those nodes. And then it's gonna run the simulation again. And maybe this time it's a little bit better. But some of those nodes are better than others. So it's gonna change them according to how they performed at, at causing this predictive accuracy. Humans, do, does the human that's building the model tell whether it's gonna pour? Like, does, does the human have to insert their judgment to tell the machine learning what is good and what is bad? So think about, think about a baby learning to walk. This is the best way to understand a deep learning model. A baby learning to, to walk, you don't really tell it. You don't give it an instruction manual for how to walk. That would be like giving the machine learning the, the algorithm. Okay. The way that a baby learns to walk is it starts to waddle. And it realizes, hey, I'm getting kind of close. And then it's going to try and maybe put its weight on its, on its right foot. But it leans too far to the right and it falls over and it laughs. Well, there's a little neural connection that happens there. And the baby's brain recognizes, okay, this worked, but then this leaning didn't. So it changes its algorithm a little bit. It changes its, it, what it's, it changes its plan for next time. So the baby next time it walks, and it doesn't realize it's doing this, but the brain, the baby's gonna take a step. And maybe then it corrects for that overleaning it did last time. So then it's gonna lean forward and it's gonna become a little bit better at walking and it's gonna fall over. And it's gonna keep track of what it did to become a little bit better until eventually the baby's walking. And it does it without knowing it. But it is just over time learned little pieces of what makes walking possible. In the same way that it, the machine learning model learns what makes these predictions possible. It's just by pruning these neurons and changing the way they're connected. Okay, so the builder, but I guess the builder, uh, does the builder have to tell the machine the prediction that it wants to? Yeah. Okay, so that's like, whenever you're talking about the baby figuring out that it, it messed up because it wasn't walking, Unlike a, unlike a machine, the baby 
can just look at the human being and understand that it but needs think to about be like that, so right? think about now in terms of the error so when a baby falls it feels a little bit of pain mm-hmm. right that's a negative feedback yeah. so that pain tells it not to do that again it doesn't tell it what to do okay it tells it not to do that again because okay. it felt a little bit of pain yeah the machine learning model you score the accuracy so if it, the predictions are very very far off from the target the prediction accuracy, right? The score that it's given is gonna be really, really bad. So think about it then like you punish the algorithm, like a little bit of pain the baby feels when it falls over. So because it feels a little bit of pain, it's gonna make changes. It makes changes accordingly. How do you you make the computer quote unquote feel pain or get- By showing, by giving that error, right? So you score the accuracy, Mm -hmm. and if it's a bad score, then it wants to do better. That score then gets shown to the algorithm. And the weights are they're called weights. Those those little algorithms that each one of those nodes is changed. Exactly the same way a neural connection is changed in the brain. It's changed a little bit. But if the error if it walk if the baby walked really well and there was no pain, it's not gonna change much. Yeah. In the same way, the machine learning model, if it did really So the last fifteen or so minutes of the podcast got kind of clunky because part of the conversation and during two separate two separate times uh got cut off sooner than I thought and yeah I just tried to cut things to where ended on uh where I ended on a topic and kind of transitioned to the next one relatively smoothly but at the end there wasn't really a a goodbye (laughs) but uh Reed had a blast I had a blast and I appreciate the time that he spent with me. Uh, I'm trying to get these kinks worked out and hopefully figure out exactly how the equipment, where it's messing up and keep it from from cutting off before I think it's cutting off and and whatnot. But uh, anyways, uh, Hunter and I are now on the Pacific Crest Trail. We're about 50 miles in and so from here on out, the conversations that I'll be having with people are friends that I've met on the trail and just trying to capture the story of why the heck everyone's here and bring bring some of the bring some of that magic from the trail uh back to my friends and family that are listening but uh if you made it this far in the podcast thank you so much and expect to hear from some really interesting people (laughs) I'm looking forward to it uh But yeah, I'll see y'all soon. Peace.